right, today we have NorCal George on the podcast. I'm completely in the dark with this one, but I'm excited. Cool. So Noor is a teacher and practitioner within, a, as her colleague likes to say, a Sufi-ish school called the Nine-Sided Circle. Oh, cool. And I encountered Noor and her teaching partner, Mushtaq Ali Al-Ansari, a few years back um, through a long and meandering and not super interesting story that I will not... <laughs> force everyone to sit through right now but suffice it to say no matter how meandering that story was they're both amazing people Mm. and i've learned a ton from spending time rapping with them so it'll be super interesting to have a conversation with noor and hear a little bit about her and her work and how she has come to be who and where she is I go by Noor Kyle George. Uh, Kyle George is the name that my parents gave me and that I inherited from my predecessors. And Noor kind of fell into my lap. I was given it by some friends when I joined a sorority where I was definitely in the ethnic minority. And that was my sister name, Noor, which means light, both in Hindi, Arabic, I believe in Farsi as well. And of course it starts there, but it took on a life of its own. It became a name I used as a um, member of the Islamic faith. That was the name I put on my conversion documents. I don't necessarily feel that was necessary, but, for various reasons that came to be relevant and at this point it's kind of an aspiration I guess <laughs> yeah I mean I, I feel like I'm I'm earning that name in the sense that I strive to be not just a sort of source of light in like the woo-woo sense that we might typically assume now but like to feel that light inside myself and hopefully share it with others yeah we talk a lot about enlightenment and i don't necessarily think that's well i definitely don't believe that's a destination it's a process and my name kind of reminds me of that nice nice when you um just made a distinction between kind of the the woo-woo sense of light <laughs> and the sense that it's resonant or perhaps uh, the, f- the photovoltaic equivalent of resonance um, mm. with you, how would you talk more about or how would you express what that kind of light means to you and is within yeah. you? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's kind of, it's even if I might take issue with like the way it's used these days where people talk about love and light and like sharing love and light in a very kind of superficial robotic sort of way where it's the thing to say it's the thing Mm -hmm. to do like that that doesn't work for me but um given my immersion in the Sufi milieu over the past decade like me talking about light talking about nor has a very specific flavor of um 
it goes it goes deep like it's about the essence of who we are just not in a surface level let me be this shining beacon for other people it's it's really about that essence and that sense of in Islam you talk about the unit the universality and the unity of God while again um, I've matured in such a way for myself that I don't necessarily use the language of God but um, that word nur as a name for the divine mm. has a lot of weight and it carries a lot of inspiration for me mm. yeah and God has many names that's just one of them sure yeah I appreciate that I um when I so I um practice martial arts at a a temple like a Buddhist temple here in in uh, New York and um the teacher offers because he's a ordained Shaolin monk he offers Mm -hmm. discipleship for for people who ever are interested in that and you become actually part of the lineage I I imagine it's very similar and when I did when I did my um, ceremony um, it's pretty interesting I don't know how you do your naming process I I think we should ask we should get into that but so we had we have sutras that we'll follow and then he just sort of line by line you know whoever um, is is interested, you know, which is the next word in the sutra will be the name of that disciple, and mm-hmm. depending on when you handed in your letter to him, will that will determine which character is your name, and then so it's a lot like that where um, it can be a ran- seemingly random word, you know, but yeah. it's sort of up to you to decide what it means for you, right. like so maybe yeah. um, a goal, like you said, or. It's really interesting, though, because, um, yeah, you, it, you plumb the depths of of how your um, how it can relate to you, and maybe the, your aspirations for, uh, like we were talking in the previous podcast about, like your um, st- uh, not struggle, but your um, goal to be in line with the divine, you know, but really the di- the divine in you. Mm-hmm. So how does that, yeah, how does the naming process work for you guys? Well, it's interesting because I, you know, my journey has kind of been a winding road like it has been for a lot of us. And by the time I was formally initiated, it seemed as though our our sheikh, our teacher is called, um, he was not really pressing giving out like quote unquote Islamic or Arabic names at that point. And I, it was kind of, I carried that name with me because of the fact that that, that particular word nur crosses so many language barriers and had already been kind of ascribed to me. Um, so it felt natural to use that, especially in um, Muslim majority spaces mm. and that goes kind of beyond the Sufi environment where you have certain uh, mainstream Muslim norms that have been set up like oh you converted that means you're supposed to take on 
let's say, an Islamically appropriate name. And for some people, that means an Arabic name. So it was kind of my way of bridging the gap, so to speak, and mm. and um, becoming part of the community in a certain way. Um, but different communities have different ways of naming. Sometimes it's based on a quality that your teacher sees in you mm. or that they want you to cultivate more of because they think maybe that's that's what you're lacking or what you're not seeing in yourself. So I have a particular <laughs> quirky way that I got my name that wasn't necessarily very traditional. Yeah. Mm. yeah. So it sounds like it was sort of in your um, in your atmosphere, and then yeah, you were curious about it, and then your teacher gave it to you. Well, it became more like this name makes sense for you. Uh. Yeah. Like, okay, it was given to you outside of this context, but you know what? It makes sense for you. Mm. Mm. That kind of thing. Yeah. Mm. So it, it really feels like... Like it's part of me. You know, it wasn't just something that I picked out of a naming dictionary sometimes. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Which is okay, too. I mean, sometimes there's there's medicine in that i suppose as well but um that was not the case for me yeah so what about you in the name that uh did you receive a name from your teacher or from your practice i did um it's part of the um bashwafo the ada buddhas mm -hmm. and it's um Xian, which means um, worthy or virtuous. So I was pretty heavy because, oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, in any, I mean, we don't, we're more of a spiritualist than necessarily like, you know, following some very specific tenets of a religion. But, mm -hmm. um, you know, it, it, it is a meditative practice that in a very physical med meditative practice in this temple specifically and um it was intense for me and i still i i still struggle with it because um you know it ties into uh feelings of self-worth and like your place in the temple and you know as you because it's also a martial arts practice you know you're sort of you know um gaining experience and so you know, more people are coming into the and into the temple. So then you, you know, just organically become a senior student. <clears throat> and then, so what does that mean for you? How do you take on that role and teaching the newer students and things like that? So it gets heavy quick. <laughs> oh yeah. I mean, that's, yeah. that's what I'm, I'm envisioning is that like, it, it is, it's definitely that sense of a name that, may have a lot of aspirational connotations to it mm -hmm. and it's like oh my god oh, suddenly there's so much responsibility to live up <laughs> yeah. to this yeah, yeah i understand that uh, but I, I appreciate that aspect of it you know it's not just um it's not just a name you're given as in i see this quality in you it's it's yeah. that inner that inner uh journey that's really interesting to me do you um because I don't use my name in public much because it's, a, I don't, for me, I don't, um, 
I mean, I will, depending on the context, if I don't right. really, you know what I mean? But yeah. I have some friends that, that I train with that they prefer to use their disciple name. Um, but um, do you find um, that that choice to use it in public tends to like reframe your daily life then because you know and really keep you focused on your path or um i mean yes and no i mean i definitely have gone through phases where it felt like um well i think we also have to (laughs) i think it feels less so because i i'm in such a different place now but i wore a headscarf for four and a half years so even without using the name, there was a lot of visibility. There was a lot of like <clears throat> value assumptions about me and what I believed. And for those who cannot see me right now, like I'm a tiny blonde, blue eyed white girl. <laughs> 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 and that's important because yeah. um, when you decide to don a headscarf and you look like that, I mean, it's very weird for people. They get very confused by that. I remember being at Disneyland with a friend um, who happens to be of South Asian descent, and she deals with her own stuff, but, you know, we had this sense of camaraderie in that people would exoticize me, they would stare at me, they would whisper to each other about me behind my back, places like Disneyland because they're confused. I mean, whether they see my face or not, mm-hmm. they're having feelings about seeing a woman in a headscarf. Mm-hmm. And then if they noticed that I am of European descent, like it adds this whole other level of like, perhaps how dare she, perhaps why would she do that? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so a name by contrast feels like whatever but i do know that that um it still does have a similar effect on people online like some people may feel that it's appropriative and perhaps there is an argument to be made about that um but given my immersion in the environments that i move through i guess to some extent i feel like you know, this is the reality that I'm living now. This name has become part of me in a very action-oriented sort of way. Hmm. Um, And in my teaching, you know, like, technically, I carry the title of Sheikha, which which means, like, teacher with a female uh, part, you know, particle on it but I don't claim that title because it does feel like inappropriate for my context I'm not trying to put myself above others and set myself apart in that way but nor at the same time does kind of remind me um, you know I have I have a goal in front of me to be um, an active participant in my own life and to uphold a certain sense of 
stewardship, I guess. Not not for like Islam or anything like that, but but to be a teacher in a way that feels healthy and supportive for others. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it anchors me in the traditions that I come from, spiritually speaking. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So what would you say at the moment in terms of your own teaching is the aspect of that that is like on the edge of your developmental understanding? Oh, wow. (laughs) There's so much. I constantly feel like that. But um, heard. (laughs) I mean, especially for me, like I'm in my 30s. I'm I I look young for people who, again, can't see me. Um, I have a very youthful looking face and I'm small. So people assume that I'm in my teens. But, Mm. you know, I'm I'm gently easing towards middle age slowly and gradually and uh yeah (laughs) sure i'm i'm blessed yes what can i say but um i have so much to learn and i feel like in some ways i have some catch-up to do like you're always right where you need to be i understand that i know that at the very same time it also feels like oh my god i have so much to learn so much that I want to be able to to be able to speak about that I don't feel confident speaking about yet and some of that comes with practice but I'm you know I might be heading towards middle age as as a human being but as a teacher I feel young mm-hmm. yeah um and that's okay I feel like there's so much to share from that location let's say of learning to guide others the humility of that is pretty intense yeah yeah uh as far as like my learning edge goes or what i've been thinking about a lot recently is just i guess (sighs) um non-duality in very like practical ways you know Mm -hmm. like things around gender around my interactions with human beings i may disagree with vehemently (laughs) Mm -hmm. so the way that comes up for me recently has been like um yeah, I've kind of set this, sometimes we talk about fasting, you know, like fasting from this or that. Right now, I think I'm trying to fast from objectification in the sense of like objectifying people who upset me or make me angry, like calling someone a piece of shit, for example. Mm-hmm. I think there's a place for that. I don't think there's anything necessarily quote-unquote wrong about that per se but i do see it kind of as like a dehumanization of someone that frustrates me and i'm starting to think of that as kind of like a bypassing of the issue itself at least for me personally and i'd like to work through that and one way to work through that is to take it head on and see okay how can i 
reframe? How can I relanguage so that I can break that habit and not necessarily or definitely not abandon my own values, but rather deepen them? So when you say that you feel like it might be a bypassing. Yeah. How so? So I do think that things can be very contextually dependent. So I have to say this strictly goes for me. I don't want to speak for anyone else and take away their sense of what or challenge what they think they need to do for themselves rather um, because that may be very empowering and that may be what they need then to speak against people who are uh, talking over them, let's say, or in some way dehumanizing them. This is one way to kind of push back against that. But for me personally, coming from a place of relative privilege and comfort, I think that I have more uh, more room to challenge myself in my interactions to not excuse the behavior of others when I when I find it to be going against things that I value deeply, but um, talking about them in such a way that I'm I'm seeing it in a less reactive way. I find that this is one way for me to do that is to not automatically jump to the wow, like fuck that piece of garbage let's say Mm -hmm. excuse my language like (laughs) i hope those those are okay here because it's all good if there's kids listening you know they're already in the deep end (laughs) (laughs) yeah but like see that's me like disengaging perhaps i need to if i need to disengage perhaps it's it's better if i like remove myself from this scenario Mm. or perhaps it's better if i think about that person as a human being while still feeling the anger that i do or or the sadness or the pain whatever it might be how can i hold those both at the same time Mm -hmm. without trying to put a salve on it of objectifying or dehumanizing the source of whatever that pain anger or sadness may be and uh Again, it's kind of fraught to say that they are the source of those feelings because while they may be doing things that are uh, having the ripple effect of causing pain in another, I mean, I also do feel that the way that we frame things and the way that we manage our inner world kind of ties into the way that we process the data coming in at us. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think Mm -hmm. so. I mean, you know, it's like people behave as they behave. I can, I don't always, I'm not always aware that I'm making a choice to have a reaction. Right. But on some level, even if it's not one I can currently access, Mm -hmm. if what they do, if I have a big experience, positive, negative, or otherwise, there's some way that I'm choosing to to see their behavior as being directly related to me 
and then I have my story about how it's related to me and what I think right. and feel about that, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. This is at least what I'm, you can tell me if I'm off base. But this I is mean, kind of... this is all nebulous stuff for me. I definitely think that what you're saying helps me better communicate what I'm trying to say. <laughs> like it's, it ties all together for certain. I am absolutely sure of that. Mm -hmm. um, and it's challenging because I think we are, many of us are so used to having our inner experience demeaned that it kind of feels threatened to talk about these things. Mm -hmm. And that is not, you know, I'm very, I'm very sensitive. Like I, I definitely have a lot of emotional ebbs and flows throughout the day. And I'm pretty able to ride those waves, but I also like to watch them to see what kind of stories I'm telling myself mm. as I experience them. Right. And I think, you know, other people's behavior is stuff that we cannot control. Mm -hmm. So it may absolutely be harmful behavior. And there are things that we can do that in kind of a big, do about that in a big picture sort of way. But in individual encounters, we cannot control them. That, again, comes back to objectifying them, right. to dehumanizing them. Um, you know, people do have the right to behave badly, and they also have the right to experience the consequences of those actions, right? But that's different from, you know, taking away their agency, so to speak. Mm. <laughs> yeah, I'm thinking, uh, as you mentioned, taking away their agency. So it makes me wonder if you feel like um, the way that you're speaking about dehumanization and objectification in terms of the language around labeling people as this or that, right? Yeah. In, in response or maybe more accurately in reaction when mm -hmm. that's happening to them, if that feels to you like on some level you are doing something that is affecting their agency? Um, no, not okay. necessarily true. Yeah. I think that's more of an internal thing. Like how am I, cause I can only work on myself, right? Sure. For me, this feels like the answer to that. Like how can I work on my habit of dehumanizing others mm. so that I can behave differently you know provide perhaps maybe to someone else an example of something a little bit different yeah. and i do think that starts with within with ourselves yeah it strikes me as a very vulnerable stance to embrace does it feel that way at all to you um i mean I think it has in the past. I think I'm getting to the point where I'm able to uh, at least begin to articulate it outwardly instead of just kind of ruminating on it inwardly and being frustrated with um, different habituations I see in those around me and in myself too, you know? Um, I think 
it does feel vulnerable in that I feel this is challenging stuff on a lot of levels. And I do think it takes a certain level of maturity and grace to even just talk about it. And I'm not saying that I have cultivated that maturity and grace yet. Again, it's something I'm <laughs> aspiring towards mm-hmm. and practicing towards. Yeah. Yeah. I yeah. think what <clears throat> what seems vulnerable to me about it um, is that so often I think we use this tactic of labeling and thereby once I've labeled this thing or I've contained it in the box Mm. right the conceptual box then like it is distanced from my experience right and i know how at least in my own internal world i like i have apprehended and thereby can manipulate said structure in some way so like i don't actually have to really be present with what the rawness of what is actually arising Mm. within the context that i i am in i've somehow created a simulacrum right and i'm no longer relating to what's going on in the moment so there's this defensive structure that i've created which you know on the one hand is illusory but on the other hand like suddenly i'm 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 not there right not really Mm -hmm. i've I've stepped back you know and established this boundary so it strikes me as a, a beautifully vulnerable stance and maybe it's not so much of a stance but dance to enter into where we're like, okay, but what happens if I don't? Oh, yeah. <laughs> what happens if I don't? What, what, what are the feels that arise? Right, right yeah. What is the context? What is the, what is the rawness of this context in this moment yeah. if I don't try to bind it? Right. right. And well, contain I, it. I love that you brought that up because I think that gets at another thing that I feel intuitively and have a hard time expressing. Like, mm. I think when I say, you know, it takes privilege to do this to some extent, it's because I I have the, you know, the sense of safety to be able to take that risk and to be like, let me swim in what this nebulousness might be in front of me without labeling it and putting it in a box. Like... Do I have the wherewithal for that right now? For the most part, I do. And I feel like I have a lot to learn from experiencing that. And perhaps it might be something that I can share with others. I mean, that remains to be seen, but at least for me, like in terms of my sense of congruency with my values and and what matters to me and how I want to move through the world, it deeply resonates with that. Yeah. It feels very congruent. And I guess it is vulnerable in the sense that, you know, I I certainly carry my own wounds and I do feel that desire to lash out in some moments or to um, experience through the lens of having been victimized, let's say. And for me, it's like, well, let's try on something different. You yeah. know, let's let's see what it might look like through a different lens. Yeah. Yeah. I'm envisioning this like, um, you know, our, our, 
our bubble of security and safety. Because I don't mm. know if you live in the city or not, but uh, I, I have. In, oh, <laughs> but you know, <clears throat> I live in Brooklyn at the moment, and um, mm. I think it's a very, um, very common understanding of everybody walks around with their little bubble, you know, and um, I think. Um, what you're what you're speaking of, I think, is like uh, reminds me of this. You know, how solid is that bubble? How malleable is that bu- bubble? Is it a, f- a fluid bubble where it can actually meld and mix with other people's bubbles and create a, a a space where we can communicate, or is it just like a solid bubble where it's like you do not penetrate my bubble, you get the hell out of here, mm. and it just it's just abrasive and it bumps off of everyone, right. you know? Yeah. And I you mean I've, the prison bubble? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> basically, right? Because you're just like, you know, I you can't get out, nobody can get in. But exactly. I mean, like, you built your own cell, right? Yeah, exactly. It can be a terribly miserable place. Um, but it's interesting, right? Because, you know, you, I think a lot of us do it out of um, seeming necessity, like a survival mechanism. You know, I've definitely done it myself uh, here and there because I just, you know, say you you let your bubble be mari- malleable and so then someone comes in and it's just batshit crazy, you know? Yeah. And, and, you know, you get... Um, you know, you feel wounded from that. So then you build up the guard again. Um, yeah, I feel like, you know, you end up being, um, you know, like you said, sort of closed off and, and um, you know, you start creating this little dark universe inside this, like, you know, hard shell. But yeah, I can see how, <clears throat> well, at least that's the, the visual I get. You know, when you describe interacting with the world with a a space you're holding for other people while you're still having your your space as well, you know, I see it, it just paints a very visual picture and a visceral picture. Do you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Especially when you're in close contact with so many people all the time. You know. Mm. Yeah, I think it's unusual now because I. You know, up until last summer, I lived in L.A. I've lived in Hollywood, in the hustle and bustle of, you know, not quite New York City style (laughs) hustle and bustle, but Hollywood is a pretty hectic, um, sensorily stimulating kind of place. Mm -hmm. And uh, similar to somewhere like New York City, I didn't have a car, so even though there was a car culture in L.A., I was always on the subway, on the bus, Mm. very much exposed to other human beings and whatever they were doing or saying or feeling in proximity to me. And I definitely recall times where it was just like, put the earbuds in. Don't look at anyone. <laughs> mm-hmm. Keep your mm-hmm. head down. Mm-hmm. Sit far away. All that stuff. Mm-hmm. And now I think it may be part of why I have the resilience to explore these things. It's because I live in, in s- suburbs in the Bay Area. I'm pretty well isolated. Um, but I think this is something I was striving toward even then. And... I guess I love 
the way that you articulated that imagery and I think that's accurate like I've, I've heard lots of discussion in the past two years about how important boundaries are this is true we need them but when we create them so rigidly and so inflexibly that we end up harming ourselves how do we how do we kind of allow ourselves to think of boundaries as you know like like a cell something organic like that something flexible that is alive and always kind of having a real-time experience of shifting and growing and splitting and allowing things to enter <laughs> expanding and contracting mm -hmm. absolutely <clears throat> yeah you know i think there's a um there's a piece here that i want to speak into a little bit that's a developmental piece i think that we haven't really touched on oh, yeah. quite yet right and i i think lucas when you were talking about you know, creating a bubble that was perhaps too permeable or like maybe mm. it was just straight up porous and then like crazy shit is coming in and then you get traumatized or wounded and then you like make the bubble super rigid and, you know, like totally reasonable. And if we think about, you know, experiences in childhood, especially when um, we don't yet really have a capacity for discernment right. right and so we don't really know what a boundary is and part of the experience mm -hmm. is like we're getting this feedback from the yeah. world right and so because mm -hmm. especially in this country i think that we often really don't have models for what healthy boundaries look or feel like you know we do this kind of pendulum swing if we have had intense experiences which of course for those of us that have gone through really intense kinds of traumatic experiences in childhood, like it really makes sense to make the survival choice. Not that we're consciously doing that, right? People just do whatever they have to do to like live, right? right? I think what becomes challenging is that then we just keep doing it, mm -hmm. right? It's, and it's not that it's necessary for survival anymore, but we, we don't know how to, and certainly some of this is opportunity, you know, and some of this is, again, modeling and examples like we, we don't know how to then engage with that process in such a way where we can start to shift it intentionally, you know, right. either ourselves or with the support of, you know, family, community, what have you. Right. So I think that it's really super appropriate to have like this incredibly firm boundary until there's enough of a, a positive ego structure developed right that we can then have a sense for what is me and not me because if i can't do that then when i start to embark on these kinds of more ego dissolving sorts of practices like creating these permeable boundaries coming into a vulnerable space it's very disruptive right if there's not a really strong sense of self that's been developed right yeah. so you know some of these things i think too it's like there is this trajectory that in the, you know, this kind of liminal space at what is hopefully the end of the modern, postmodern, closed loop, civilizational epoch is, at least in a lot of the developed world, like really incoherent mm -hmm. and really challenging to navigate mm -hmm. and really sort of like modelless in terms of what 
young beings have to like look towards is what skillful navigation and maturity really is, um, you know, as a, as a human. So just wanted to like kind of throw some developmental pieces into the conversation Mm -hmm. that for me, at least as I'm listening, I feel like kind of help us connect some of these pieces, right. As a part of this continual work. And, and for me, nor like, as I think about what you were saying, this, you know, you started with the non-dual being this kind of edge, the developmental edge, and then you brought it into this particular way of working with that really practically speaking. And Lucas, as you were talking about the bubble the image that I had, right. For you, Nor was like this, you know, the bubble was light, yeah. right. In this next <laughs> exploration, right. So that it's this kind of radiant, you know, vibratory thereby shifting right kind of you know organic construct that that i was seeing in my imagination Mm -hmm. right as you were talking about this kind of process that for me became like a symbolic image um that somehow feel feels expressive of this dynamic that you're exploring well i don't know no i mean i think that's really badass like i I'm actually reflecting on my own history and the only reason why I'm at where I am now is because I, in part at least, had such a successful time in therapy (laughs) over the past few years of piecing myself back together. I mean, when I went in there, I was just totally... Uh, I felt like my identity, as in my ego, my sense of self, my sense of having edges to my body and my mind were kind of in tatters. And I had to kind of reintegrate so many parts of myself in order to feel like a quote-unquote functional person who could move through the world in a way that um gave my life not only meaning but a sense of like any kind of forward motion Mm. and i don't think that the kind of perspective i hold now would necessarily been healthy for me to try and Mm. build up then let's put it that way because it would have meant more of this like not just codependent, but just this vague lack of self, I would have just internalized everybody else's stuff in a way that that wasn't like how people talk about like, oh, empaths or whatever. It was really a practical sense of, I don't know who I am. I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing. It was It was bad enough that although I didn't have access to it, my therapist was saying, I wish we could get you some like more intensive care because Mm. I needed like very frequent, constant reassurance (laughs) that I was going to be able to pull myself together. Um, And I feel like the reason why I was able to do without that was was because I was so determined for something to change. Mm. Yeah. So I am so grateful for that experience because 
not only did it help me better integrate all those those tattered parts of myself but now i feel like oh wow so many other people are having this experience totally yeah Mm -hmm. i'm curious in terms of um you know timelines where that set of experiences and your conversion to islam and work and i don't know if your conversion to islam is directly linked to your work in the sufi tradition or if those things also kind of have some level of independence you know but you know, I'm, I'm curious about how that yeah. tapestry is woven i think it, it's different for everyone and for me i would not have taken interest in islam at all if it were not introduced to me from the angle of sufism so from the beginning almost not quite like i had muslim friends and i was visiting their homes and you know having experiences with them that i appreciated but as far as what struck me like i kind of joke that converting to islam was sort of like the second time i came out of the closet because it was like falling in love and trying to figure out like why do i feel this strong sense of needing to be with this thing Mm. um and it was a little embarrassing for me given all the islamophobia and i was like am i just doing this because it feels like the cool avant-garde thing to do (laughs) in this you know like Mm -hmm. given the fact that i come from a both waspy and catholic irish upbringing you know this stuff is not okay with them Hmm. it was very challenging so was this like my slightly belated teenage rebellion (laughs) Mm -hmm. um i mean i tend to think no because the way i came about it was so much from the heart rather than from a sense of impulsivity Mm -hmm. and uh I think it was the beginning of me trying to shape myself, Mm. but along the way I fell into traps. Like instead of sticking to the Sufi side of things, like I, I have felt a bit trapped by the dogmatism and such of more conservative Muslim environments. I, I mean, I don't want to get too much into that because I feel like there's so much people don't understand about the Islamic faith and like Muslim communities and it gets into like racism and all that stuff that is so heavy and so hard to unpack and I have experienced all kinds of things through my exposure to these environments that would take up a lot of time to share (laughs) but essentially I came away from that knowing okay I know that I am going to be someone who is going to find a safe harbor on the margins Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
And that was something that I, I think I, I knew from the beginning and then had forgotten along the way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And in terms of um, on that road to understanding the safe harbor on the margins being kind of like your your set point place, mm-hmm. um, this experience you were talking about, about finding <clears throat> yourself in tatters, yeah. um, where like did that precede entering into your Sufi work? Are they, were they like concurrent? I'm kind of curious about yeah, yeah, spiritual you, autobiography, like how you mentioned the timeline. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, I don't mind giving a little bit of a like cliff's notes of my evolution there. <laughs> so, um, I grew up, uh, a pretty shy, awkward kid. I, I mean, again, viewers can't see, but I have some pretty heavy-duty glasses going on. And, you know, when you're a young kid, people don't... They don't... They're not very supportive about that, let's say. Yeah. <laughs> and... Um, Wait, children aren't always kind? What? I know. <laughs> God, what happened to the, the innocence of children? But mm. Mm. that's a great I question. Mean, that's a myth in itself. Yeah, but mm-hmm. um, so I was I was an awkward child and very shy and pretty uh, introverted and um reluctant to show myself. And then by the time I turned sixteen, I had like tried very hard to fit into my like Christian middle class home culture and it was it was tough to say the least and then you know not really having a place at school and all that stuff so it was um interesting and also kind of like empowering to come across things that made me stand out but also made me feel good I guess so I met a girl at a camp when I was 16 who I had like an instant crush on like I had not planned to be attracted to girls at all like most of my crushes at that point had been boys my own age and such um but it totally caught me by surprise and from then on it was kind of like this fire of maybe I don't have to give a shit about what other people think about my life (laughs) Mm -hmm. maybe I don't need to try so hard to to be cool and acceptable and all that stuff because it's not working anyway so (laughs) why not just embrace it um, so at that point, I, I kind of felt like I took on this, this this sort of adversarial persona where I was swearing even though I had never, like, sworn before, and I was more comfortable about sex even though I had been totally averse to ever talking about it before that. It was just, like, a 180 in that I suddenly felt free to be 
more rowdy and more myself, I guess. Um, I was discovering what being myself might be. And that also meant, like, disavowing Christianity and Mm. um, being pretty resistant to any kind of religious talk and all that stuff. But by the time I got to be around, like, um, 19, I guess I'd kind of, like, sorry. I have a reminder for much talk. If you can edit that out. (laughs) 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 It's our vitamin reminder. (laughs) Um, Like those, those harsh edges started to be kind of smoothed away. And I was feeling like, you know, I think there's something about me that is spiritually inclined, but not necessarily religious. So how do I... How do I incorporate that in without feeling like I'm taking on things that feel weird or don't make sense to me and pull me out of myself yet again? Hmm. Um, And I didn't really encounter anything like that until I was doing, like, religious studies um, for my bachelor's degree. I had such an amazing uh, intro to Islam professor, and he was a Sufi who had been a convert as well from, like, a waspy background. So we kind of shared this sense of, like, well, I guess we get to be weirdos, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Like, he became such a a good friend and mentor to me because... Mm -hmm. Like I said, I felt like I was going through this coming out process of like, oh, I'm learning something about me that I didn't expect to learn about myself. That the way uh, Sufism in particular envisions spirituality is kind of this, this, it, it, it is very non-dual. Like it talks a lot about like, how we all contain we are the reflection of the divine essentially everything we do is the divine in action we just don't realize it yet Mm. and that's to put it very simply but that resonated with me not just on kind of a um, a heart level, but on an intellectual and instinctive level, too. So, I don't think it gave me all the answers, because things were still hard from then on out. Like, I think it was another decade of trying to work through shit without support <laughs> before I finally found a therapist who really understood that I was I was functioning from a place of you know hyper vulnerability. Yeah. Hmm. That I had such, you know, strong sense of not a conscious sense of what mattered to me but like an intuitive sense and I was very much struggling to live that out 
Were you actively engaged in spiritual practice during those years that you were kind of feeling like you were looking for that therapist that you hadn't yet found, (laughs) whether you (laughs) knew that's what you were doing or not? Oh, right. Um, Yes and no. I mean, I have had teachers who kind of provided like an interim safe space, but who didn't really understand that I was, you know, I'm, I'm kind of a learn to learn the rules to break the rules kind of person. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I'm not ashamed of that. I actually feel very much like that's what I'm supposed to be doing, Mm -hmm. you know, with, with grace and intention and care. Mm -hmm. But um, there are a lot of spaces that uh, don't necessarily make room for that. And that just kind of added to my angst. Yeah. yeah. I felt like I couldn't trust that part of myself that um, feels called to move in that direction. Which direction? Uh, that, you know, I tend to to want to challenge the rules, you know, to, oh. to mm-hmm. learn from them by, mm, I, you know, I think that structure is important. You know, I'm not saying we don't need any rules at all, but I do think that everything is t- contextually, context is everything. Let's put it that way. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things, or two of the things we talk about on virtually every podcast that we do are the, the notion of reality is fundamentally processual rather mm. than a set of objects that are acting upon each other or being acted upon. Um, so that there is this like there, you know, so from this perspective of maybe even proto Taoist philosophy, right? Not so much Taoism as a religion, but the antecedents of Taoism this idea that there's anything that is fixed, that there is in fact a subject and an object, like it's just not even there, right? right? That's a, you know, this kind of artifact of Indo-European language. Right. My opinion, right? But nonetheless, right? So that we end up embedding ourselves within this kind of separate and I think inherently inaccurate model of reality. I mean, and certainly no model is ever going to be totally accurate because it's a model. Yeah. But at the same time, there are certain models that are more, that are closer (laughs) and seem to be more useful, useful in the sense that they help us navigate through experience in a more, you know, harmonious and graceful manner. That's going to be my, that's my bias in terms of like, what would be more useful? Um, the other thing, you know, would be this kind of like both andness. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, um, so the thing, the reason I'm bringing these things up at this moment is as I hear you speaking to your, um, your capacity to learn the rules so that they can be moved with potentially, right. Maybe broken, maybe rearranged, maybe moved inside of <laughs> to me, like the thing that I, I'm hearing that I want to get some feedback on as to whether or not I'm hearing this correctly is that so structure is one thing dogma is something entirely different as far as Mm -hmm. I'm concerned Mm 
Mm-hmm. And so what I have heard a couple of times and almost brought up is that it, it sounds like dogma is not something that like not something that feels good to you. It's like, yeah, absolutely like maybe, not. Maybe even allergic to or anathema to perhaps like, yeah. I don't know if you're supposed to be strong, <laughs> but whereas I, structure, right, is like structure in some respect has a, a level of at least some of the time neutrality where it's like, okay, we have these things within this process. We have the warp and the weft, right? We have the tides, you know, the currents yep. within the ocean and we can engage with them. I can slip into this current. I can slip out of that current. I mean, if I don't know where the currents are, I might get tumbled by one or even damaged or killed. But at the same time, if we can understand what the topology of, no one can see this, but I'm like a very moving kind of speaker. <laughs> so I'm like moving my hands through all the topology the of the possibility yes. space here of what that structure is. And so then there's this possibility of moving with and within it, right? And so that I can be in this both and relationship to structure where I can acknowledge, right, that it has potentially an inherent value as what it is, but I don't have to put it in a position where it somehow, because it is, thereby is supreme or has validity uh, that is more than the simple nature of the fact that structure has its own kind of wisdom, right but it it's it's not that because it is structure thereby it must be maintained because it is structure and it must be maintained like one of these like closed loops of dogma where it's like but the way mm-hmm. we do it is this way and and we do it this way because it's the way we do it yeah right yeah. And like oh okay okay right yes so i don't and know if any of that made any sense but i it totally makes sense i mean i think that i do and especially did need structure in order to survive in the sense that it gave me the shape in the container to hold myself together when I didn't have one of my own. Um, I think therapy was a good one for that. I think that, you know, when I was a a baby Sufi (laughs) and a baby Muslim, that gave me the space I needed for that. Um, But I think one thing that really has been challenging for me within more conservative uh, circles or, you know, contexts or whatever, whether it has to do with um, religion or spirituality, generally speaking, or like even things more in the realm of politics and all that stuff, like... I guess I wouldn't so far say as, like, I'm, you know, I reject dogma because it's dogma, but because I have learned from experience how non-nourishing and how unsatisfying it is for me personally. And my bias personally is that I do think there's something that sort of allows us to abdicate personal self-responsibility when we rely on dogma. I'm trying to find the right words, but I hope you guys are understanding me. Like, I I feel like it's almost like you can almost become jelly within it because the structure is going to hold the shape for you. Mm Mm-hmm. 
yeah. I don't have to hold myself up because there's this thing that's so rigid that I can be held by it. Yeah. And I don't have to make choices mm-hmm. or right. understand how I think and feel, mm-hmm. you know, on my own. I can just rely on the fact that this is how it is. We do right. things this way. We yeah. think things this way. Right. Here's the story. You just need to memorize it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. This is your place in it. Just be, you just be in this place in the story. <laughs> you don't have to worry about anything else. As long That's as right. you can, you know, uh, imbibe the story and be satisfied with it. You're good. Yeah. Yep. Get story I, drunk and don't ask questions. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. That doesn't, that doesn't work for me. Um, I've come up against a lot of things that I have, I've been shocked to see the waves made because I felt like that wasn't enough for me, you know, like people would feel like this should be enough for you, why can't you just accept this as it is? Yeah. It's just not. I find that that um, the surrendering to dogma, um, even in a in like a positive context, meaning like you know, you think that you're living a righteous life because you're within living within the dogma. I find that that almost is um, is somewhat more dangerous because you're not challenging you're not being malleable and you're not if you're especially if you're doing outreach if you're going out into the community and trying to make a difference or something like that or spreading positivity but something like that but more than like because this is my experience um i used to be very um religious as well as spiritual but more so religious when i was younger and we did a lot of outreach we did a lot of uh, mission trips and things like that which are great those those um, organizations are fantastic, but the uh, you know not every single member who decides to volunteer for them um, is as malleable in their understandings. Most a lot of them are very dark, dogmatic, and so what I saw happening would be, you know, <clears throat> like uh, we would do these um, service projects, basically going in and fixing people's houses, and these people had to um, apply for the help. So they had to allow themselves to be vulnerable, open their homes up to strangers, let them see, you know, um, how they're struggling and, and be completely, they just had to be incredibly vulnerable. And so we would come in there and depending on the, the group, be very righteous and high and mighty. And, and, you know, we're coming with the, with the word of God. <laughs> going to save y'all, you know. And a lot of times these are, you know, God-fearing people themselves, but they have their own practice or maybe they don't, but they're actually spiritual people. And I just got a real bad taste in my mouth for the people who are more dogmatic and would just sort of um, not, not be... Um, understanding of how someone might not (laughs) think the same way and just sort of like don't worry all your troubles will be taken care of as long as you follow jesus you know like 
and then you know throw out the 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 little catchphrases here and there and like let's read a verse and like let's sing a hymn and then we'll all pray that'll save it's like what does that even mean like you know if you don't dig into it um then the practice uh becomes flat and it doesn't you know we can't use it in, in in every other circumstance it's like i don't know when that when that is appropriate but it's certainly <laughs> you know for me on boots on the ground it was terrible you know connecting with people on a spiritual level is where you know i found that to be effective were you gonna say Terry? yeah i was just gonna say you've got a consent question that has not been <laughs> yeah. acknowledged right it's right. like it's appropriate if people are like thank you let's pray right or right like, you know right. we're asking you not just to fix our plumbing but you know we we want you to bring the word of God in this particular way into our home, like awesome. If that's going to enrich and enliven and nourish people, because it does for many people, Mm -hmm. fantastic. Like let's pray together. Mm -hmm. You know, I'll pray with anybody if that's going to make them feel better, if that's something that they want to do. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. But definitely me foisting whatever my particular orientation is on anybody else who didn't ask for it. I mean, isn't that the thing we call colonialism? <laughs> really? Amen you know? to that. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, it's like there's a reason that shit's problematic. And I, th- I think it's, I mean, I don't want to, um, I think it's really simple, actually. I do really think we, what we're talking about is a consent question that's never really been put into this space. It's never been asked. It's never been acknowledged mm-hmm. in these circumstances and these places. And so, you know, when we can engage with choice like that, then it it can take something that might, to me, actually not feel particularly resonant or deep, but because the context now is one where, you know, like, I'm there, I agree, like, you know, these people have invited us in and they want to do this thing, and I'm like, great, but they're, again, as Noor has pointed out many times, context, everything is so context-dependent that if if the agreement of the context is that we're going to do this thing together, then that has meaning, and what the thing is, in some respects, is not necessarily so relevant because it's really about the communion that's going to happen between people that are agreeing to be in relationship in that moment. And if we're not agreeing to be in relationship, right, there is still a relationship, but mm-hmm. it's not one that feels very good. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. It doesn't, it's not, doesn't seem to really um, nourish life in any way that I see in the moment. Now, of course, there's the possibility of growing from that too, but that gets a little bit into like, you know, this kind of, almost Pollyanna, like the possibility. It's hypothetical. Yeah. You know, it's Mm -hmm. like, sure, you could learn from that. Maybe you will eventually have the resources to have learned from this shitty situation. But in point of (laughs) fact, it's not very deftly or elegantly handled. And it's Mm -hmm. certainly not in the highest good of all of the beings that are in that space. Right. Right. From my, Mm -hmm. my orientation. Does that feel relevant and resonant for you, Lucas? Oh yeah, because if it's um, it, and this is actually sort of how I've learned a lot of lessons in life is watching people make mistakes and then just saying I'm not doing that. <laughs> Do you know? Yeah. I mean, it certainly. I mean, I don't know. I can't say for sure, for sure how those families were affected um, by those people, but um, it certainly you know put me on a trajectory. I was like, well, <laughs> I've got a lot of things I got to figure out now, and it this path is not where I want to find them. So that was good, 
and then you know I think I've expressed well enough that you know my experiences in that moment and and how that impacted me so hopefully that sent a ripple as well you know Mm -hmm. so and maybe those people maybe those families had a similar experience or they experienced it similarly where they're like well that was unpleasant let's not do that (laughs) you know or maybe they didn't maybe they were just like you know that sent them on a path and then now they're happy as this can be in the dogma i don't know but it felt awkward in the moment so i can't imagine so yeah yeah i mean i i've been in situations where you know when i was like a baby muslim and i was going to the place of worship the mosque masjid um people would try to take me under their wing and like shape me into what they thought a muslim would be while also kind of feeling like oh there's this white girl here she's like a trophy kind of that is going to be like an ambassador and there's this whole other layer of like you know privilege because oh here's someone who's gonna make us be more acceptable to the mainstream that Mm -hmm. you know that i would carry Mm -hmm. and also kind of like an internalized you know oppression on their part where it's like wow even the white girl's here and thinks islam is cool and wants to be here (laughs) and at the same time they're they're talking down to me because i'm a woman and and they're saying like oh you should do this and you should do that and women don't do this and um these are all dudes or this is women as well both but Uh i think the person who is most who who was like basically trying to they were texting me a lot and they were just trying to like lecture me about what i should be doing and how they were going to make sure that i was able to learn this stuff in kind of like a let me tell you what islam is all about sort of way because you definitely don't have any idea and that felt inappropriate to me you know i'm sure there's someone who would have been like wow i'm so glad someone's reaching out and like not ignoring me when i go to this place where i feel a little shy and like i don't know anyone but for me it was it was it was oppressive. Mm. Once, yes, mm. it was. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I knew that the kind of Islam that they wanted to impart to me was not the one I came there for. Let's mm. put it that way. Yeah. And eventually, I mean, there's this phenomenon among both... Uh, people who are brought up in the Islamic faith and people who convert of like being unmasked and what that means is like you realize you at least in the vast majority of Islamic places of worship in the US because of the influx of Saudi money and Saudi dogma and all that stuff they're very patriarchal Mm -hmm. they're very um what's the word sectarian are we talking about sectarianism yes thank you that is the word um yeah it's heavy stuff and and it 
it's it's hard to extract it because you have the preacher at the pulpit who is sharing this stuff and and you have the board who's setting an example and gender segregation kind of exacerbates the whole thing um yeah it's very hard as as a woman especially as a cultural outsider to I don't want to stay I guess I kind of mean stand your ground like all these things are relative and again contextual where I you know when in Rome do as the Romans do and all that stuff is often appropriate but there's also this sense of like you know being disenfranchised because of your gender or any of those things yeah I think you know it's this is one of the really challenging things in dealing with organized religious structures and i think why the spiritual but not religious movement is so vast amongst Mm -hmm. i mean millennials first and foremost but really not just millennials um but they're certainly the group of folks that are most known for that being almost in the majority with 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 their age group you know it's like the capacity to have respect for ancestry and tradition Mm -hmm. and at the same time not uh, fall into this kind of dogmatic trap that we were sort of talking about a little while ago too I think it's it's a really challenging thing for us humans to navigate and negotiate Mm. you know and we don't have in I just don't think we have a lot of really good examples for how to how to dance that dance um, these days, I can't speak to whether there were better examples in other times, but I can definitely say that in my observation, people are often like, oh, it's in the United States. But like I spent a lot of time, you know, a lot of time in Brazil and mm-hmm. in the interior of Brazil in communities that were lauded for this kind of balance. But I didn't see it as a balance. I did right. see respect for tradition and I did see rebellion, but the kind of like this sort of amazing expression of something new that was about, you know, bringing, bringing the ancestral into the modern. I didn't really see that. I saw this kind of way of recapitulating a set of norms, right? And you could either do that or you could be in rebellion to those norms. But there were, it, there were really pretty clearly yeah. delineated roles, right? And so I think that this is a really challenging thing and it's, one of the things that I'm hoping, like I was referencing this notion that we might be at the end of the closed loop of modernism and postmodernism, like that maybe we're coming to the close of this epoch and potentially entering or already in this liminal space, that I would hope that in what we're living and breathing and moving into, that maybe this is part of one of the things we can see really shifting. Because I think that that kind of capacity to bridge what seems to have been to what seems to be what's going to happen and recognize that, you know, like time is not a linear construct always. That may be a certain relationship to experience, but that is just one, right? I I think that this is really important uh, for what comes next to just blow up the whole idea that time is not always linear by talking about what comes next. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, I feel like this gets into 
I, I feel like I'm kind of in this in-between stage too where part of my spiritual awakening has been um, developing more of a yes and no attitude towards so many aspects of my so-called identity. Yeah, like how I'm perceived by others is certainly relevant. But again, there's this deeper level in which those distinctions kind of crumble and fall away. Mm -hmm. And we always have to walk through talking about this carefully because we don't want it to sound like we're swinging too strongly one way or the other. At least for me personally, I really value walking that line or that, you know, that in-between space between this or that. Right. Yeah, because as I've been saying previously, like, I'm definitely a white woman of European descent with this and that attribute about me, and yet all of that stuff is on a totally other level illusory. And holding space for both of those truths or both of those layers of truth is the direction I'm heading in for sure. As you're speaking, one of the things that was like coming to mind um, was that the middle way is liminal. You know, Mm -hmm. we hear a lot of talk in spiritual circles about the middle way, but I don't know that we as often overtly speak to the fact that that inherently means it's a it's a space between right Right. and that in spaces that are liminal like we we can't really know Mm -hmm. things really aren't one way or the other right right they are yes and no they are both and they are like in this kind of dynamic you know uh dance yeah and that feels so real to me and yet i see how i'm still living through those old mechanisms and such Mm -hmm. so Amen, sister. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> with it every day. Yeah, but that's that's part of the the whole gig is is walking through that. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So we're we're in la- landing mode here. <laughs> Are there thoughts, questions? Places you want to direct people? If people want to connect with you, of course, we can. Um, put that in the show notes if they yeah. want to check out your work they want to check out talks um, but is there anything that you you know want to share or leave leave us or leave those folks that are listening to this conversation with as we come to a close yeah well i mean i mentioned that i am a a growing teacher in the green leafy sense and I guess I'd, I'd love to direct people to check out the school that I co-founded with Mushtaq Ali Al-Ansari. It's called the Nine-Sided Circle School. And you can Google for us and we'll come up on YouTube and Facebook, um, Instagram, I believe, as well. And we are uh, kind of a Sufi, in, that's our lineage, but we are not religious in any sense we are very non-dogmatic and we care passionately about getting people to think about these liminal things 
getting people to think about not only that, but how our movement through the world, becoming more conscious of our own actions, thoughts, behaviors, is so important for helping us in a very interdependent sort of way become a healthier culture, become a healthier planet. All of those things are relevant. And I would love for anyone who's interested to check us out. Yeah. It's great work. I want to really encourage folks if that rings your bell. Great yep. work that I have uh, had the pleasure of learning a lot by participating in over the past few years. So We have loved having you, Taryn. I feel like <laughs> we are... In a sense, you know, I'm a co-founder and a teacher, but we are a community of teachers who are leading in their own right, and we're just kind of supporting each other through that, and whatever guidance we offer is just a bonus. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. It's been a blast. Yeah. Cool. Well, Noor, I want to express my heartfelt gratitude to you for taking the time and making the time to be with us and talk with us. It's been a total blast and we really appreciate it. Yeah, thank, thank you, you so much for having me. Yeah, I mean, it it's something I'm so happy to have been able to take part in. So thank you. Well, then, everyone, until next time. Bye. Thank you. Thank you. Bye.